Welcome to another episode of Web Dev Weekly, the weekly podcast about web development. I'm Brad Garifee. And I'm Richard Gallieber. And this week, we're going to talk about ramping up at a new job. But before we get into that, just a reminder, we have a form to ask us questions. And we'd love it if you would take a moment and submit a question. You can find a link to that in the show notes. So Brad, you recently started a new role. Before we get into the actual ramp up, how's the new job, man? How's it going? Pretty good. Let's see. I've been here for two weeks and a couple days. Uh, it's at Atlassian. I'm working on Trello. If you've ever heard of it, it's kind of like a to-do list Kanban board type thing. And it's been good. I got a bunch of PRs in production already. And I feel like the team is really laid back and I feel like I'll fit in pretty well. My kind of people developers. That's awesome. I don't know how laid back they are if you've only been there for two weeks and you already have code in production, but regardless of how much work you're actually getting done, considering you've only been there for two weeks, I'm sure that the ramp up process has been interesting. And I think that that varies so much from company to company. We thought we'd take some time to talk about maybe some of the different experiences we have had in the ramp up process. What's it been like so far at Atlassian over the past two weeks, Brad? I have to say that Atlassian has had the most structured onboarding that I've ever been through. And I actually think they were very quick to get me up and running with like a development environment and actually being able to push code. And I think that speaks a lot. I think the faster you can get your engineers up and running, the more productive everybody can be, right? Because I know, you know, I know there's some companies out there that have very long lead times until you feel productive. But, but in this case, you know, Trello is a web product. I'm very familiar with stuff like this. And a lot of the setup and understanding of the environment was pretty run of the mill. But of course, we know that there's a lot that happens before getting into the code, right? Like probably the first thing that everybody has to do when onboarding is like, okay, open a brand new laptop and try to figure out how to get that going. Yeah. And there's always that, at least for me, that struggle of which apps can I install that aren't already installed that I love to use on a daily basis. How does, how does that fare as far as this company and are you allowed to install things or not? Yeah. I, from what I see, I'm allowed to install basically anything. I haven't run into any problems. Let's put it that way. Um, although anything from the Apple app store or anything like that, I have to enter in an Apple ID. I don't have one of those. So like, I'm just treating it like it's not an Apple computer. I can install stuff off of the internet, you know, but, but not anything through the official Apple channels. Uh, Atlassian does have kind of like this uh, approved list of things where you can go to first to grab applications. So that's always the first stop, but for the most part, you know, you don't need much. VS code, maybe a rest or GraphQL client, your, your typical slacks, things like that. And, and most of that was all pre-installed for me. So it was pretty good. Right on. That's awesome. Yeah. More and more, it seems like the necessary tools are already coming pre-installed on work laptops, which just makes life that much easier. Yeah. But I think the hardest part of doing a laptop setup is getting all of your accounts and access provisions. You know, first of all, you have to figure out like your biometric authentication to the machine, as well as whatever, like your work 
ID and password are, and you know, the, like the complexity requirements on those are like insane. They have to be like 16 characters and use like 12 different languages. And, you know, so you have to get all that set up first and that's just to get into the laptop, you know, and then you have to run the gamut of like all of the different services and everything that you could possibly use. And that's like my day one stuff. It's like just trying to get access to the 50 things that you need and setting up those passwords and then hopefully putting it into a password manager so you never have to deal with it again. Yeah. Does Atlassian do two-factor authentication? That's one thing with passwords that my current company does two-factor. And so their password requirements are fairly lax because really it's the two-fact piece that's more important, I think. But I did see a meme today. You're thinking about the password requirements remind me of a meme where it's like, you know, somebody puts in like a giant password from a password manager and it's like, it needs to be under 16 characters. So they simplify it. No special characters. So they simplify it again. And they're like, by the end, it's just like one, two, three, four, five, six, trying to meet all the different requirements and that passes. Yeah. Um, we do actually use two-factor authentication here. It, you're right. It's way more common nowadays. Um, the apps are pretty good though. It sends it right to my watch or my phone. So it's pretty easy to just click okay, wherever you are. Yeah. Uh, and then of course there's a lot of like integration with biometrics. So anything you do on, on the MacBook, uh, biometrics are integrated there as well. Yeah. We use YubiKeys and I love my YubiKey. It's so nice. Except for when you accidentally bump it in like a regular chat window. <laughs> it's the worst. Yeah. That's awesome. As far as communication goes, does Atlassian use a different system than Adobe? Or is it like everybody else for the most part and uses Slack or yeah, how's that going? Like for instant messaging stuff, it's all Slack, tons and tons and tons of Slack rooms, right? Uh, but only a single Slack workspace, which I like. I feel like Adobe had like a gazillion Slack workspaces and it was kind of difficult to manage. I think it's a little bit easier to just like have one workspace. And now with the editable sidebar in Slack, you can like categorize and your channels and mute certain ones and prioritize other ones so it becomes easier to deal with as far as like the email and calendar stuff goes though uh it's all google workspaces or you know whatever their whole ecosystem is so that's been a bit challenging for me because i have to actually balance all of my personal like google accounts with atlassian google accounts so like it, there's a lot of switching back and forth and I haven't come up with like a really slick way to do that yet. Yeah. Personally, I just keep everything work on work and personal only on my personal machine. I know you like to kind of overlap slash blend as far as which machines you're using. And so I don't know, I put a hard moat around work and it only exists on the work machine. And then I don't ever log into personal accounts on there just cause I don't know that way you don't accidentally. Do something silly, like send some source code from your personal email address and then security finds out and they go, Hey, that's not cool. Thanks for working for us or something silly like that. Right? Like I, here's my system for stuff like that. So I use the multiple desktop feature on the MacBook to say like, this is my work desktop and this is my personal desktop. And each one has an instance of Chrome logged into a different account. So if I want to go check Twitter or whatever during a build or something, I swipe over go to the second desktop where my personal Chrome is and I can look at Twitter while a build completes or something like that. But so I have like a mode, you know, and all the colors are different too. Like I was saying, like the, the personal one is all purple and the work one is all blue for Atlassian. So I have like a mental cue to know like 
focus in here, focus in here, either way. But now Atlassian had this uh, bring your own device policy where like you could, you know, link up your personal computer if it met security requirements and things like that. So I was all excited that I was going to get to use my Windows machine for development. And again, it's not about Windows versus Mac. It's just about, I have this big, powerful PC hooked up to all my peripherals, and I want to use that first and foremost. But I ran into a bunch of problems with this due to the VPN and security because they put your your own devices on segregated networks which don't have access to source code. So they're like, yeah, bring your own device. It'll be great. Except you can't look at the source code. So it's pointless. Does your job let you like bring any of your own hardware or is, I know you probably don't prefer to do that anyway. Yeah, the closest you could get is with uh, mobile phones, I believe. I don't think, at least not that I know of. I don't know of anyone using a non-work computer for anything like that. So... Yeah, I, I'm not aware of it. Yeah, with those restrictions in place, I I don't have the proper desk set up to do laptop and PC switching. So I'm like literally working off of my laptop and my laptop alone right now. So I have to like use the work from home fund to pick up, you know, a KVM switch and a and a dock and try to mesh these two machines into one display and peripheral setup. And that's to be a big challenge that I haven't figured out yet. That's awesome. The ergonomics are on point just using your laptop on your desk. I'm like all hunched over on like this tiny oh, screen. It's terrible. I and I do say like my productivity takes a hit when I don't have my keyboard and my setup and so it's a big project that's got to get done sooner rather than later. It's okay, Brad. We're all geeks here. We know the keyboards don't actually make you more productive. This is a safe space. You just like the way it feels. It's okay. So as far as productivity goes, how has that been going? Like, what is the, do you have like an expectation of when you will become a productive contributing member? Not just, you know, pushing your first PR or whatever, but actually, you know, hey, we can just toss a task at Brad and he'll be able to take care of it. I guess let me approach this from two ways. So far, I've gotten like what? Three or four pull requests merged and pushed into production. Very tiny stuff. Some were docs changes, some were, you know, just other kinds of like organizational things. And to me, that's good. You can do that kind of stuff in two weeks. That means you've got your local development environment up and running. You have all your access that you need. You understand the build process and the checks process. And you're on board with all that, which is a hurdle in and of itself. Understanding the code base is going to be a different story. It's a big code base. It's an older product. It's already established. And my team has our hands everywhere because we are the, the front end platform team, which means you guys should be jack of all trades everywhere in the web repo. So I think it's going to be a while before I reach the, the knowledge levels that some of the other senior guys do on the team. And it's just a long road ahead there. Um, how long do I think it's going to take? I don't know. I think within a month I could be taking on like more real regular tasks, but I still won't have that deep, dark corner knowledge of every piece of the repository. Yeah, that's cool. So you have local development environments as well? Uh, yep, we do. And, um, 
my team has some really, really awesome documentation. They call it like the front end guide and it goes through everything you need to know to like get everything set up. They're like, get access to these places, you know, your, your Bitbucket account and uh, all these things. Here's where the source code lives. Here's how we can set up VS code. And then like the process of, you know, their process of branching and committing and merging and doing PRs. So the documentation is awesome. And it only took me probably like two hours to get a local development environment up and running. And I was really, really impressed with that. Yeah, that's not bad at all, for sure. Where we, my current job, we have remote development environments. So it's, the setup time is just like nothing. You click new instance and boop, there you go. Depending on which code base you want to go into, it may or may not take a little bit longer to spin up, but yeah, it's, it's kind of nice to not have to, not have to worry about that. Once they started, when I started there originally, it was like you had to clone everything down to your local machine and all that stuff. But once they started these like on-demand servers, it's been game-changing, especially for like new hires. There's no like, you know, hey, spend a day like building the code base. Good luck. It's just like, hey, install VS Code and click this button, tap your YubiKey and wait 10 seconds. That's Congratulations, awesome. you're good to go. So yeah, that... That kind of infrastructure stuff is super helpful and mind-blowing. And two, like if you, I don't know, screw things up and make a mess, you can just be like, I'm just going to crumple up this VM and grab a new one because I have no idea what I did. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, we've mentioned this in, I feel like, a bunch of episodes before, but GitHub moved all over to code spaces. These on-demand development environments are becoming a little bit more par for the course and I'm pretty excited, you know, if my job ever adopts something like that. I don't think there's any talk about it, but I can just see the future. I guess you're already living in it. Yeah, it's, I don't know. I can't deny that it's, it's very nice. Uh, let me contrast this, though, with a horror story. Um, when I worked at Adobe and I had to get Magento up and running, it is a well-known fact for new employees that, like, your first month is going to be, like, understand how to install Magento and like get it up and running locally. It was very, very difficult. That sounds like a whole bunch of fun. No. Yeah. I can't, I don't know. I remember, I remember a lot of instances of this kind of stuff uh, throughout my career and I'll be happy to never go back to that. So we've talked about device setup. We've talked about getting the code base ready to go. Uh, the other thing that a lot of times just takes time to kind of understand and get a feel for is kind of like the culture of a new company, right? How does Atlassian deal with that? And especially considering that you're fully remote, what has that been like to onboard into the culture of Atlassian? Do they just give you like a Jira board full of tasks that you have to complete? And then like by the end of it, you'll have drank the whole pitcher of Kool-Aid or what? <laughs> That's a honest to God, not too far from the truth. They actually create a, uh, a Trello board for every new hire that says, here's like tasks for you to do in your first 30 days, your first 60 days and your first 90 days. And I, I actually really like that because it, it, a lot of those tasks are like culture type things or introduce yourself to your team or, you know, check out these Slack channels or these confluence pages. And it does, it helps you get acclimated uh, as funny as that sounds. 
culture does take a while to learn, but I got to say one of the things that I'm understanding about Atlassian is that the internal confluence, like the, the internal kind of documentation and, and note sharing system has a subculture of its own. And the, the, one of their values, open company, no bullshit is definitely very prevalent within confluence because everybody gets to speak their mind and different teams get to share what they're doing. And there's a lot of transparency there. So I, I, I actually think that that internal confluence instance is one of the best ways to get acclimated with culture, not only on a individual level, but also on a team level and like a whole organization and company level. That's awesome. Yeah. While I was mostly joking, like having those to-do lists are super helpful because that way you don't end up just like, you know, especially being remote. If you were in the office, people will notice, Hey, there's a new person sitting at that desk. I'll go say hi. But when you're remote, it's like, Oh, nobody's like, Oh, Hey, somebody named Brad joined our Slack channel. I'll set up some time to talk to him. Right? Like, I don't know. It's just not like how things work. So it's well, definitely good to hear. Now it's like, you know, there's a zoom meeting and a new face shows up and it's like the Brady bunch where everybody's looking at the new person, you know, in the square, in the zoom meeting. Yeah. But yeah, like one of the tasks is set a one-on-one -on -one with every single person on your team. And I'm like wholeheartedly taking that into consideration and setting meetings. And I, I just think it's the best way to get started on the right foot. It gives you the chance to ask questions and it gets existing coworkers to ask questions about you. Right. I wanted to take just a second to go back to the code base. I've realized that we didn't talk about this. So what are you doing now? Uh, you, you've mentioned that you're doing front-end Trello. What's, what are you doing? I assume it's not Magento. Yeah, so the, the kind of mantra of the team is to keep the health of the code base in good condition and make it developing on the code base feel really good and really easy. Uh, I we were just working on a mission statement and I totally butchered it, but it's, it's something like that. Like make sure that working in the code base feels good. And so our team does a lot of like refactoring work, a lot of like scripts or CLIs that work with the repository to perform tasks, whether that be like testing or releasing packages or checking your test coverage or generating reports, all these little things that just make it easier to get a handle on such a big mono repo, because that's what we're working in. So, uh, if you're not familiar with working in a mono repo, this is my first, uh, they can get pretty big and pretty hairy and tooling really helps make you feel in control of what's going on there. Yeah. Mono repos can be very interesting. We have those at work and most of the time there's no issues, but man, occasionally merge conflicts are rough and I normally just start over because so much changes when there's a merge conflict that it's just like, oof, never mind. Let's yeah, copy paste my code into a new diff based on the master branch and go on. It's just wild how many commits are going into main at all times. And like, it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, I've never seen code change so fast. So a lot of what we've been talking about was very much like you as an individual developer, understanding the lay of the land and meeting your team. But maybe we could shift a little bit and talk about like what the company has in place as like official onboarding and official training. Cause everybody knows that, you know, so much is on your shoulders, but as much as the company can help, it's really great. Um, Richard, in your past experiences, like 
what have you done for like onboarding, whether it be like HR or specific like engineering training? Yeah, it varies a lot based on both the size and the technical chops of the company, I guess I'd say. Like the, the focus, if it's a tech-focused company versus not. Uh, where I currently am, like onboarding was a whole event, like fly out to headquarters, spend some time there, depending on the role, like that time is up to like six weeks. Um, going through like a boot camp type thing where you get introduced to the entire code base and everything. So you definitely, I mean, I think they serve pictures of Kool-Aid on day one. So, you know, you're drinking that from the first day, but you have time there with everything from like going through benefits election to setting up your new device. Like, you know, everybody does that all together in like a cohort, if you will. Other places I've been, it's just been like, well, here you go. That's your desk. Good luck. You know, that kind of thing. Then like, you know, here's your, here's a buddy for you to talk to who's worked here. Uh, their name is Brad. Good luck. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So it, it varies so much. So, so much. I do think that the HR piece and culture piece is very important as well. And something that can definitely be overlooked in the onboarding process, right? Because like setting up all your benefits and everything, man, that's like that's a beast unto itself, especially, I don't know, maybe it's just cause that's not the field we work in, but a lot of that stuff, I'm like, man, what does this even mean? And like, do I need this thing? And all sorts of stuff like that. Like I know, um, when it came to like, you know, just like health benefits, like these high deductible health plans that have an HSA, like, is it worth it or not? At first you're like, man, I'm going to lose so much money. But then you compare like your monthly out of pocket costs and everything. And it gets really crazy really fast. One of my previous employers, we actually had one of the HR uh, reps actually would sit down with you and talk about your situation and go through the different options, and, like compare prices and stuff and like compare like your maximum, like out of pocket at the end of the year, if you used all of the benefits, you know, for like healthcare and stuff. And that was super helpful because it helps you to like break it down and not just go off like, you know, the initial sticker price assumptions that you're going to have and stuff like that. So it, it definitely can vary. And I think a lot of it has to do with the size of the company. And like I said, the focus of the company, how was that at Atlassian? Yeah, both at Atlassian and my previous two companies, they had, um, like hour long sessions or two hour long sessions every year where they would like review benefits, the changes to benefits, the tools to use to access them. And so luckily that was pretty nice. And there's this automated tool that they all used. I think it was called Alex that would like help you determine your medical costs and what the best plan is like numerically. So that was really helpful. It took a lot of the guesswork out of it, but that's just for like Sounds the great. HR stuff. Yeah. That's like your, you know, they'll do that for all your benefits. And then of course they cover like payroll and expense reimbursement and all sorts of stuff like that. Atlassian has been the only company that has like formal engineering training. Although it's kind of weird for my team, Trello operates outside of the Atlassian umbrella from what I understand. And so a lot of this Atlassian training that I'm going to do is specific to Atlassian core products. Trello um, was acquired, right? Trello was acquired. Yeah. I haven't actually gone through that stuff yet. It's four full days of engineering training. And I think they're going to like show you how to build a production feature for 
Confluence or Jira or Bitbucket or something like that. But that's going to be cool because that's going to expose me to like the larger company and all these other products that I use and really like. Yeah, sounds good. It's sometimes it can be frustrating though when it's not something that's applicable and you have to go through the training anyway and you're like, man, hopefully everything is way worse over there. And you're like, man, I'm so glad I'm on Trello. Maybe that's the case. I think regardless, I'm going to like the learning experience because it's not very often that you could just sit in one edge of the company and learn so much about another edge of the company. Meaning like if you ever want to change positions internally, you kind of already have a feeling for what's going on over there. So usually it's like a black box. When I was considering doing an internal transition at Adobe, I had no idea how other like Adobe core product teams worked. And it took a lot of thought and asking questions on my end to try to suss that out during interviews. But I like the hands-on experience here that Atlassian is going to give me for sure. I think another really important part of the onboarding process is just what kind of internal documentation your company has. Uh, do you have any horror stories or companies that stand out in a good way when it comes to like knowledge sharing internally? You said horror stories and it just brings to mind two words, tribal knowledge, which <laughs> at a previous place of employment was the go-to for the DevOps team. When you'd ask them how something worked, they'd say, well, that's just tribal knowledge. Uh, if you spend some time with us, you'll figure it out. That was the worst. I, I personally really like documentation. I know that there's always the struggle of once you write something down, it's probably out of date, but I really appreciate documentation and I'm always pushing to document stuff when it's going to be useful, especially like if there's more than just you doing it, right? Like even if it's just you doing it, man, I can't tell you how many times I've been like, man, I know I've done this before. And then like I pull out the notebook and I'm like, okay, flipping through the notebook. I'm like, aha, here we go. Right? Like you take some relevant note. I've been trying to get into the, uh, what's it called? The ORM, M O R M realm with like obsidian. I still, I don't know. I feel like I, I do a bad job at that, but that kind of stuff, just like keeping track of different little tidbits of knowledge so that you can, you know, have a, uh, offline database of memory is super useful. And so, yeah, documentation. I love documentation. My current job, there's not a lot of documentation. Most of it's really old if it's there. And again, like I push for it there as well and kind of champion projects to get stuff actually into like a wiki, but yeah, how is, how is the documentation at Atlassian? There is a ton of it. It's almost hard to understand where to find things and don't take that as a criticism. Okay. My take on documentation is there's a wide range of it, right? It can be as primitive as pencil and paper working your way up through like very chill note-taking apps, then getting into more serious note-taking apps like Obsidian, moving into wiki space with maybe like Confluence or something, and then going all the way up to like a published, you know, actual website with documentation. And I think really good documentation is number one, searchable, and number two, doesn't feel like it's set in stone, like easily modifiable without a lot of barriers. And so I guess what I'm trying to drive at is I never really knew how much I loved Confluence until I got access to like 
Atlassian's instance, and there's so much stuff in there and it's got a great search and it's a low barrier to edit. And it just feels very accessible to me. And it's helped help with so much because the whole company runs off of it. It's pretty wild because I didn't, I didn't like con the Confluence instance that Adobe had because they were using some old version or something. When I got to Atlassian, they were using their brand new, like their new Confluence cloud or whatever. It was amazing. It's like yeah. Notion, but way better. Like the editor experience is very similar to Notion. Okay. But, but more advanced and much smoother. It's a lot faster. And the way they link between pages and do things like it's, I like it a lot better. That's cool. No, like, I struggle. I, really like I honestly struggle. Like I want, so we're, I'm actually talking with like a DAO about documenting like developer onboarding and like how to do that, whether it's Notion or whatever. I think GitHub is probably one of the best places for that kind of stuff so that people can easily contribute. But that's what you're saying. I mean, it's like that, but it's a built-in tool. GitHub is just free. So Brad, you've been there for two weeks and already you're a corporate shill pushing that confluence on all of our listeners. This ad okay. was not sponsored by Atlassian. So anyways, Although it should be. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can tell you, you actually do enjoy the product. And I think probably the biggest thing you said is the fact that the barrier to entry, like the, the friction, right? Friction matters so much when it comes to doing things, right? Put a little bit of friction in front of something and that will keep so many people from doing it. And so I think that's what you were getting at, right? Is that the, the friction to modify, use the documentation tool is very low. Yeah, just because most of the Confluence pages there are very open, whether that be to all the team members. And there's no real like commit process as opposed to something like documentation stored in GitHub. There's a couple extra steps, right? Number one, you have to be technically savvy to update it. Uh, and it, it's typically revolved around technical things. Whereas in, in the Confluence space at work, sometimes it just could be process stuff and it doesn't necessarily have to be technical. So removing that kind of commit step, I think really helps a bunch of developers feel like they can make little edits here and there always accessible. Yeah, that's awesome. I definitely think that stuff like that, uh, you know, keeping documentation part of a workflow and making it as easy as possible is really good. Things like creating, I know at my current place in Plummet, there was a push to have like self-documenting code in that you would put comments inside the code and then that would roll up into the documentation for that code that kind of died off. But that kind of stuff too is, is huge because it keeps, it's reducing that friction, right? You don't have to go out somewhere else and do an extra step. It's just built into your workflow of, Hey, I'm adding a new function. I need to put the information about that function here. And then boom, the documentation is going to be updated as soon as this gets merged in. Yeah. I'm. I'm building this SDK right now for our podcast host, Captivate, and I'm using TypeScript, but I hand wrote this entire readme for the API docs. And I'm like, there has to be a tool to do this. I, I know there is a tool, a package out there that will extract TypeScript types and TS docs and generate API documentation, but I haven't gone to look at that yet. But man, that would have saved me so much time. So the more you use stuff like TypeScript or GraphQL, these self-documenting type standards and languages, like it does just kind of start to come for free and not only right where the function definition lives, but through the magic of editors and IntelliSense, you get that kind of instant inline 
documentation, which is unbelievable for uh, productivity. Right on. Was there anything else that you'd like to talk about, about your onboarding experience? I think just like a good final tip is whatever your company creates, make sure you play with the product. Get to know, for instance, for me, Confluence, Jira, Bitbucket, we dog food all those products at work. And the more intimately familiar you are, the more you become a power user, you know where the friction is so that in your day job, you can work to take that out or make it better. Uh, and I think it's just going to make you a more valuable asset to the team when you are the product's biggest user. Yeah, that's a good point is to be aware of the actual product and what it's like to use it. That definitely can make a big difference, I think. Absolutely. So that does it for this week's episode. Thank you for tuning in to Web Dev Weekly. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe in your podcast player. And remember to check us out on Twitter. Both of our handles are in the show notes. We do have a Discord community. That link will be in the show notes. And don't forget, you can ask us any question you'd like, and we'll answer it live on the show. The link is in the show notes. We'll see y'all next week. <laughs>